When I was asked the question, or the candidates were asked the question, uh, uh, if you are success successful, how are you going to promote equality, diversity and inclusion in the professional? Words to that effect. Um, and I was the second person to answer. And I was the only person of colour on that panel looking out at my fellow colleagues thinking, how am I going to answer this question? And, you know, um, I answered it very quickly, perhaps too quickly for the compare. Um, and I said, how am I going to promote equality, diversity and inclusion in the profession? I'm going to role model it. I'm going to be visible. And I promised the Law Society two things, or I promised them many things, but, but above all, two things. I told them that I'd be visible and I'd take them to places that they've never been. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. Today's guest is I, Stephanie Boyce, the Deputy Vice President of the Law Society of England and Wales. Later this year, Stephanie will be sworn in as Vice President, and in 2021, she will become for the first Black, Asian, or minority ethnic person to ever serve as the Law Society's President. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. Stephanie, to start off, I'd love for you to tell us uh, briefly about yourself and your career thus far. So, absolutely. So, uh, I qualified as a solicitor in 2002. Um, I began my career in private practice, uh, but was made redundant twice in as many years um, due to the decline then in publicly funded work. Um, so, I decided to move in-house um, uh, into a, a business rather than the traditional private practice firm uh, that we, uh, uh, that solicitors tend to work within here. Um, and my move for going in-house was uh, the fact that I was attracted by the opportunity to work more flexibly uh, uh, and to be closer to the decision-making process. Um, and I went in at a time in 2004 when uh, going in-house wasn't really talked about uh, uh, as much um, and certainly routes into the profession weren't clear. Um, and when I told my first recruitment agent that I wanted to work in the city, i.e. the city of London, I was told I wasn't being realistic. Um, so getting my first job in the city at the General Council of the Bar, and the General Council of the Bar, best known as the Bar Council, is the organisation that looks after the other arm of the legal profession, i.e. barristers. So I joined uh, the Bar Council as a solicitor uh, to the uh, then Complaints uh, Commissioner. Um, and uh, for me, joining the Bar Council was a real coup. Um, so I've had a varied career, um, uh, moving in-house, working for accountants, um, moving very quickly into the governance sphere, which is my absolute specialism. Um, and uh, I've done a master's in public law and global governance with King's College at the University of London, um, where I suspect that, that, that my appetite for governance started to form. So I'm also a fellow of the governance, uh, the Chartered Governance Institute here in the U United Kingdom. And when you become the, you're, you're Deputy Vice President of the Law Society today, uh, and next year you're going to become the first person from an ethnic minority to become President of the, the Law Society. 
Um, so number one, congratulations on, on, on that. And I'm, I'm curious, what was it like? What, how did you feel when you found out that you had been elected? Well, firstly, it's, it's, it's a remarkable achievement and absolute privilege to hold this position. Um, and, you know, to put it into context, uh, and you touched on this earlier, but to put it into context, I will become the sixth female president and the first black ethnic minority president in the 195 year history of the Law Society of England and Wales. So when I found out that I had been elected after four attempts at trying, um, I cried tears of joy. Uh, uh, it still takes my breath away now. Um, uh, the announcement is traditionally uh, done by the CEO who will call you up, uh, uh, call all the candidates to deliver the news, calling the successful candidate first. And I had been on a, on a panel that day um, at the Law Society with a fellow candidate um, and I could hear footsteps outside the door, but the, the panel I was on was overrunning. Uh, it was getting later in the day. Uh, about five o'clock, six o'clock, walking up Chance Chancery Lane, the street upon which the Law Society has its headquarters. Um, and I took the call from the CEO, um, and it was just general chit-chat to start with. Um, and then he said, I've got something to tell you. And I took a deep breath <laughs> and I said, okay. And he said, you've done it. And it just, the, the tears just, it just started rolling, took my breath away. Um, and as I say, it's a remarkable achievement to serve my profession. And I'd love to, to hear a bit more about uh, why you were so driven to achieve this, this position. Take, taking four runs at, at something uh, is really significant. This shows uh, a lot of tenacity and this is obviously something you, you wanted at a deep level. T t tell me a bit more about that. I had a dream. I absolutely had a dream and I was determined. You know, um, I, I knew I was just as capable, just as qualified, just as experienced as anybody else who'd held that position. But I was told uh, 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 by fellow colleagues, you know, Stephanie, go home and rest. You know, you're embarrassing yourself now, you know, uh, having uh, trying my fourth time. Um, never in our lifetime will we see uh, an ethnic minority become president of this law society. But, you know, Jack, the more they told me I couldn't was the more I was determined that I could. Um, and so for me, the, the first three attempts were lessons learned. So, you know, because for me, it wasn't in the knockbacks. It was how did I rise when I, when I fell? Um, and I refined, I honed. Uh, uh, my skill set and, 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 you know, my knowledge. Um, and I remember sat uh, uh, the night after Hustings, because we have to do Hustings as well. And Hustings, perhaps if your audience uh, isn't aware, is where all the candidates are uh, give a speech. Um, and then we face a number of questions uh, uh, from the audience and some uh, pre-written questions, none of which we've um, had in advance. Um, and uh, the day following uh, uh, Hustings, I remember a former president sat next to me and he said to me, you must be quietly confident you've got this in the bag. And I turned to him and I said to him, I've been quietly confident every single time. <laughs> <laughs> so such was, you know, my belief. Um, and, you know, uh, to take us back to Hustings, 
when I was asked the question, or the candidates were asked the question, uh, uh, if you are success successful, how are you going to promote equality, diversity, and inclusion in the profession, or words to that effect? Um, and I was the second person to answer, and I was the only person of color on that panel, looking out at my fellow colleagues thinking, how am I going to answer this question? And, you know, um, I answered it very quickly, perhaps too quickly for the compare. Um, and I said, how am I going to promote equality, diversity and inclusion in the profession? I'm going to role model it. I'm going to be visible. And I promised the Law Society two things, or I promised them many things, but, but above all, two things. I told them that I'd be visible and I'd take them to places that they've never been. So for me, it's absolutely about resilience. Um, and I just kept going. And to tell you the truth, I would have kept going a fifth, a sixth, a seventh time, because such was the belief in my determination to succeed. Well, once again, congratulations. And, and that's truly an inspirational story. When, when you look back at your three failed attempts, what did you learn from those experiences? And how did they inform how you approached your, your fourth attempt? Do, do you feel like you approached the challenge differently or do you think something had shifted in the, the macro environment that helped see you get election, elected the fourth go round? Well, for me, nothing comes before, nothing comes before it's time. So, you know, um, and I don't necessarily look at the previous three as failures. It just wasn't my time. Um, right. And, you know, I'm an absolute subscriber to law of attraction, positive, positiveness. And so, as I say, those were, were, were stepping stones, building blocks. Um, you know, it was me flexing my muscles, you know, increasing my strength. Um, I read more. I spoke to people more. Um, I, you know, uh, uh, I just absolutely immersed myself. Uh, I, I, I approached it as if I was studying for an exam you know, covered every single topic because the Law Society covers, uh, it, we are a diverse profession in terms of where we practice, what type of uh, law we practice. Um, so you, you did not know in which question you could be asked. You had to know everything. And you had to respond <clears throat> in a way that brought everyone with you. Um, so people didn't think, oh, that person is only going to advocate for one particular sector or, or division or whatever, you had to be able to bring everyone with you. And that was done through speaking to people. Um, and as I say, I approached it as if I was studying for an exam. I read everything, read, watched everything. And for our audience that, we, we do have an international audience, but the majority of our audience is, is American. Law societies bear many resemblances to bar associations, but they are different uh, in some ways. I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what holding the office of president of the Law Society means in, in general, and in particular for you, what does holding this position mean for you? Well, I've made history to start with. Uh, my brother said to me the other day, he says, sis, do you realize that they'll be reading about you long after you've gone? Um, so uh, what does it mean? It's an ambassadorial position. Uh, uh, um, traditionally, five days a month of your time is devoted to being Deputy Vice President. But for me, I stepped, a, I, I stepped aside from practice uh, very early on to devote all of my time, my full time to this role because such was the belief in this position. 
as I say, it's a remarkable position to get out um, and, and represent your profession, advocate for it, speak on behalf of it, influence. We have a unique relationship with government uh, where we do seek to influence, where uh, apolitical, so where we're neutrally, uh, uh, neutral when it comes to politics, um, and enjoy a very good relationship with, uh, with the three major parties, uh, which in this country is the Conservative, who are currently in government, the opposition party, Labour, and the Liberal Democrats, the third biggest party. And what we do is, is that we um, try and lobby and influence in terms of where we see areas within our profession perhaps are struggling, or indeed we have a public interest uh, uh, role as well. And that is to promote, promote the rule of law and to ensure that uh, uh, the public has access to justice. And of course, in these current times, having access to justice is more important than ever. As we've seen, uh, certainly in this country, we saw our courts close, um, our courts are starting to slowly open up. But to put it into context for you, uh, 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 we have about half a million or so backlog of cases in the criminal uh, justice system that one newspaper, a major newspaper reported will perhaps take five years to clear. Wow. Um, so, you know, justice not only must be seen to be done, it must be done and it must be done fairly. Um, and if you're looking at half a million, almost half a million cases, five years to clear, you know, on both sides, whether you're the defendant, whether you're the victim, you know, um, can justice really be served? Stephanie, something I'd love to, to spend a bit of time on is in your path to becoming president of the Law Society. It's obviously uh, been an interesting path for you. Uh, there's a video interview you did for a project that was celebrating 100 years of women in law in the UK. Uh, and you commented that you did face obstacles as a woman, but that it's difficult to talk about obstacles as a woman without talking about the obstacles as a black woman. Uh, and you said those obstacles actually drove to help you succeed in your, your career. C can you walk us through some of your experiences and, and some of the obstacles you did overcome over the course of your career? Mm. I mean, absolutely. If I may first. Uh, so the 100 Years Project, a remarkable project uh, uh, that uh, was put together to celebrate the uh, removal of the Sex Disqualification Act uh, uh, of 2019 in this country. And we celebrated that in December uh, uh, 2019. Sorry, I must Sex Disqualification Act of 1919, and we celebrated that in 2019. Um, and, and what can you tell us more about that act? So essentially, that act was a remarkable act, but it gave women uh, the right to become law to enter the legal profession, other notable professions, accountancy, veteran, uh, uh, veterinarians, um, and so forth. But, um, but, you know, after long years of campaigning, uh, uh, women uh, uh, were able to, to, as I say, join the legal profession, although it wasn't till 1922 that we would see our first women, uh, woman qualify as a solicitor. Um, and there were uh, 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 four candidates to be uh, admitted, um, and that was uh, uh, decided as to who was going to be the first to be admitted as a solicitor, was decided if, if, the, if the folk tale is to be believed, by a race down Chancery Lane, and uh, whoever won that race was the first person uh, to be admitted uh, as a solicitor, Carrie Morrison. So uh, a remarkable act, as I say, that really liberated and opened up the professions for women. 
Um, so the 100 Years Project marked that and they approached me uh, very early on to ask me, would I be involved uh, in that project? Um, and that was a, a video biography and a series of video biographies of other notable females, um, and which was also followed up by a book. But quite right, when people ask me to talk about the obstacles that I face as a woman, it is absolutely difficult for me to talk about obstacles as a woman without talking about obstacles as a black woman. Um, you know, each and every one of us faces uh, and will face challenges at some point in our lives. And whilst the challenges that I have faced may be different uh, than that of others, um, each, of, each and every one of us wants the same thing. And that is equality of opportunity and to be treated fairly and equitably within the law. And the challenges that I have faced have shaped me into the person I am today, the person I'm seeking to become. And as a woman, a woman of colour, a black woman, I did not take no for an answer. I pushed and pushed and kept pushing. For me, I pushed. And that is, I persevered until something happened. And as I say, it took me four attempts to become Deputy Vice President um, of the Law Society in England and Wales. And as I say, when everybody told me it's never going to happen, um, I didn't give up and I wouldn't have given up because I knew, as I said, that I was just as capable, qualified as anyone else who had held that position before. So for me, you have to be in it to win it. You have to keep going. And that's how change comes about by being part of the change that you want to see. And sometimes that means sticking your head above the parapet and being strong and the odd one out, but it means that you have to, as I say, be in it to win it. Over the past few weeks, the topics of systemic racism, police misconduct and justice reform have been at the forefront of social discussion uh, and rightly so. Most of our audience is based in North America, as I mentioned earlier, um, can you shed some light on what things have been like in in Britain? And, and I'm also curious, I, I know you did some of your schooling in the U.S., um, maybe some of the macro level differences you might see as it relates to these issues in the U.S. versus Britain. Mm. I mean, Britain certainly has been showing its support for Black Lives Matter uh, movement with gatherings, marches, and outpourings of shared experiences and support uh, and support for the calls for change um, uh, uh, that are taking place in the US and around the world. Um, one could not but, 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 but be touched um, uh, by uh, the abhorrent uh, 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 tragedy around George Floyd's death, which caused outrage and empathy um, wherever you are, wherever you are in the world. Um, but what that did was absolutely mobilize and, 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 and mobilize people here from all backgrounds into speaking out against injustice and inequality, from gatherings showing support to high profile figures speaking out and sharing experiences. You would have seen perhaps Lewis Hamilton, our uh, most successful Formula One racing, uh, racing driver, you know, football players, you know, uh, uh, speaking out um, as they call for further review and access on justice reform to ensure equality before and within the law for all. The reality in Britain is, is that if you happen to be black, you are perhaps more likely not to have gone to university. You are more likely to be caught up in the criminal justice system. 
one in five times more likely to be tasered by the police um, and more likely to be or come from a disadvantaged background. Um, it's important that we all, you know, um, and I think what the Black Lives Matter uh, movement has shown is that enough is enough. It's time for concerted action. Um, and certainly uh, in terms of uh, what's gone on uh, in America and, 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 you know, how that compares, um, whilst perhaps we don't have uh, a policeman putting his, uh, his, his knee on, on, on our necks, you know, the difficulty is, is that where people don't feel that they are treated equitably and fairly, um, that is perhaps the, the two things that, that the commonality that binds people together. This gives us an, a, an optimum chance to, um, to affect change, real change, uh, and start to move the discussion forward, but to take real action. And certainly from the legal profession's uh, perspective, that covers, as I say, not only the solicitor's profession, the, the barrister profession, the judiciary and so forth, because our judiciary is not diverse here. And there have been a number of initiatives over the years to try and increase diversity amongst the judiciary, because it must be that we must reflect the society we seek to serve. Um, and so uh, uh, it is, you know, this gives us a real opportunity to step up those concerted efforts to increase diversity and inclusion. So I'd love to dig into that topic, Stephanie, uh, about the specifically in the legal industry, uh, where do things stand in terms of equity, diversity and inclusion? You commented to the effect that we've got a long way to go. Um, and that's underscored uh, with some data that the Law Society has has generated through a comprehensive survey that it did back in 2018. Um, can you can you speak a little bit to, to some of the findings of that that survey and and delve a bit deeper into the, the thoughts you just shared in terms of why diversity is so important? Well, absolutely. So uh, the survey that uh, I think you're speaking about is the Women in Law survey. That's so, right. Uh, yes. So women currently make up about depending on which figures on which day, but around about just under fifty two percent of the solicitor profession at the moment. So we are in the majority. Uh, you know, a hundred years later, we have made it uh, into the majority, into the profession. But of course, what we're not doing um, is uh, we're not reaching, we're not staying in the profession, and we're not uh, reaching the senior positions in the profession. And if you then add in uh, uh, intersectionality into that, um, and, and what I mean by intersectionality, if, if you start to add in additional characteristics, into that factor, such as, you know, whether that's uh, race, uh, 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 disability, sexuality, so forth, um, the findings become even more uh, 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 eye-watering. So um, the previous president, Christina Blacklaws, undertook a women in law survey, and she took that not only nationally, but she took it globally. Um, and basically, uh, uh, what that survey found was that the profession had made great progress, but there's still a long way to go. Um, and, you know, it, Christina undertook approximately 250 roundtable discussions across five continents within 21 jurisdictions in 30 cities involving approximately 5,000 women and men in the profession. Um, and the research identified that the key obstacles to women's career uh, include unconscious bias, 52% of those uh, surveyed, cited unconscious bias. 
Um, however, only 11% said that unconscious, unconscious bias was consistently carried out in the organisation. Um, so, and, and overwhelmingly, 91% of respondents to the survey cited flexible working as, a cru as crucial to improving diversity. And of course, COVID-19 has managed to do in 48 hours what the legal profession perhaps would have taken, uh, parts of the legal profession would have taken 10 years to do. And that is yes. for us to work flexibly. Um, so just to give you a, a little bit more uh, data, um, when we start looking at uh, BAME uh, solicitors in the profession, um, and where the Law Society is about to conduct further research and, into and the <clears throat> Sorry to interrupt, Stephanie. BAME, BAME is a bit of a UK-specific acronym. Can you explain what that means for us? My apologies. So BAME, which is a very controversial uh, uh, acronym at the moment, um, because there are calls to replace it with something perhaps more fitting. So at the moment, BAME stands for Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic. Um, and that is how, uh, the, the, or that is the term that is used to describe uh, those mm -hmm. of us from, from an ethnic minority background at the moment. Um, but as I say, there is also a movement to try and get that terminology shifted. Um, but uh, uh, so BAME solicitors make up about 17% or so, between 17 to 21% of the profession. Mm -hmm. um, and to put that into context, black solicitors make up about 2.1% of the solicitor profession um, and 3% uh, uh, of the UK population uh, following the last uh, census in 2011. So, you know, in terms of an, an Asian solicitor is about 9% so in, of the profession. So there's a long way to go in terms of diversifying the profession um, in terms of, so we've got the, we, we've kind of got the, the gender balance, but uh, we've got the gender balance, but we haven't got the equality when it comes to equality of opportunity if you happen to be female. And as I say, if you happen to have other characteristics, and if you then build in sexuality and disability, those figures get even worse. And can you talk about some of the ways, you know, as, as you become president uh, and, and you see some of the opportunities for, for change, how do you see COVID-19 as having accelerated some of the change that you believe is actually driving women and potentially other uh, other groups out of the the profession. You made a comment that you know overnight, uh, and I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. By the way, overnight we saw more flexibility, uh, more technological change uh, happen in the legal profession than we might have seen otherwise in a in a decade. And I think at least amongst the courts, may, change that may have never happened. Uh, and I'm, I'm I'm curious in what ways you know, despite the you know steep humanitarian toll that COVID-19 has exacted. There are reasons to be optimistic this has actually had, you know, positive impact on some parts of society and some parts of the legal system. Can, can you comment on your observations on that front? Absolutely. So in terms of the economic impact in this country, we've only seen around about a 4.9% drop off in legal services. What we did see very early on uh, uh, when we, so in this country, we went into uh, lockdown, as we call it, um, on the 23rd of March. On the 23rd of March, the government was very clear and told us we were to stay home uh, and we were not to go out unless, of course, oh no, we were permitted to go out for one hour per day for exercise. 
um, uh, uh, and to only go to the shops, uh, uh, the supermarket for essential uh, uh, essentials. Um, other than that, we were to stay home. Um, and uh, we took that literally. Um, uh, so, you know, um, so one of the things we've enjoyed is the fact that, you know, nature, uh, uh, birds we haven't seen in years, uh, flowers, um, you know, the air has been clearer, um, less cars on the road. But of course, what that meant was, was that people weren't spending money. They weren't, and what spending money translates into the legal profession, they weren't, so the conveyancing market, i.e. the property market, shut down here. The government uh, uh, unequivocally said, if you are in the middle of a transaction, i.e. you are in the middle of moving home, um, please have a discussion amongst yourself and you know, see if you can put that off, stop home. In fact, my own home was on the market um, and I had accepted an offer uh, uh, the Friday before we went into lockdown. Um, and of course, that uh, the rest is history. But so the conveyancing market, the property market came to a full halt. So did jury trials in our criminal system. You know, jury trials is at the, the cornerstone of our democracy, the fairness of our justice system to be judged, uh, uh, you know, uh, by your peers. Um, uh, that all came to a halt. Immigration work. Um, you know, uh, some areas were thriving, such as employment law, um, wills and probate. Uh, uh, but the rest of that has, has come to a, came to a halt. And whilst parts of our economy is starting to open up um, and uh, the, the housing market opened up uh, a, a month or so ago, um, there's been a lot of transactions that have been lost in the lockdown COVID implication. Um, I spoke about the criminal, the effect on the criminal justice system with the backlog of cases uh, mm -hmm. uh, before. Um, not all of our courts have opened up. Um, the uh, uh, the um, uh, the Justice Secretary, the Attorney General, uh, are trying to find ways to get us back to working. Um, and in fact, has looked at uh, ways of working to conduct jury trials, uh, such as that undertaken uh, uh, in the Second World War, where we only had, instead of 12 jurors, we had seven. Um, uh, uh, there is talk of emergency legislation being introduced uh, in the next coming weeks to, as a permanent measure with a sunset clause, uh, and a sunset clause being that only for a limited period of time, and this must be reviewed, um, that we proceed uh, uh, to uh, with criminal trials without a jury. Um, the president, Simon Davis, of the Law Society of England and Wales, has come out um, and spoken very clearly that um, we are not in favour of having uh, uh, no jury trials. It is right, and, and it is right that you are judged, as I say, uh, by your peers, um, if justice is to be done and seen to be done. So that takes us on to technology. Technology has played a, a vast role in getting us all through COVID. The fact that I'm sat here talking to you now and we're you know, miles away, different continents away. Technology is good when it works. It is good when you can afford it, when you have the skills to work it and, and, and the hardware and the infrastructure. One of the things that we've seen with COVID, and, and no doubt perhaps you've had this experience as well, is that as we've all been at home, um, so I'm supposed to have super fast, super fast fibre optic broadband, but um, I think it's got a touch of COVID because, you know, <laughs> as we've all been at home, um, it's slowed down. Um, you know, I've got a couple, I've got about four devices around me at the moment. I forget what else is going on in the house. 
So, um, and because we're all in uh, working from home, it's been a drain on the system. Uh, so not everything works when you want it to work. But what we have seen is where firms have said, uh, uh, you know, we need you in the office. They've had to allow staff uh, uh, to work from home because the government is still telling us that you only go into work if it is absolutely necessary and you cannot work from home. So the default position is that we're all at home uh, for the moment. Um, so we've seen technology play a, a vast role. You know, um, if we, so for the Law Society, all our face-to-face -face events have been cancelled uh, for, for, uh, until later this year, possibly into 2021. But what we have seen is more engagement, greater engagement when we deliver webinars and so forth online. But our concern remains for the ju judiciary where we have seen some hearings taking place remotely is that to give an example where you have a couple who have been locked down in the same house who are in the middle of a divorce and they are to attend a hearing online and perhaps you know trying to have legal advice take legal advice when your partner is sat right. next to you or in the next room the other thing of course is that what we're hearing on the ground is going back to the point that i made about resources is that if you cannot afford we've heard about people having to pay to top up their phone so they can get the data on their phone in order to appear before the court. Um, you know, we've heard uh, of a lack of consistency amongst our members as to different courts applying remote working and rules uh, differently. And the biggest thing, of course, is that, you know, um, especially for a jury trial, you know, you want to be the defendant, the jury wants to be able to see uh, witnesses, the defendant and so forth. You want to see their body language their facial expression and you know seemingly at the same time the defendant wants to be able to confer with his legal representative um, whether that's passing a note uh, whether that's you know saying something because somebody has said something and technology doesn't always allow you that privacy or to do that so technology so so my uh, uh, the point i'm making is technology is a great thing um it can speed up justice but it must be that justice, as I say, is not only seen to be done, it must be done fairly. Um, and it must be uh, at the moment we have a consent uh, where, it, where you consent to doing things. Um, if you appear before, say, the Employment Tribunal, it's by consent. Um, but not necessarily in other parts of the justice system do we see that consent in place. So Stephanie, I'd like to wrap up with a a big question, um, you know, and, and, and the data shows us what we see in the industry shows us that there's a long way to go when it comes to true diversity and, and inclusion in the legal industry. Um, <clears throat> and I know there's people listening that want to drive change, just don't know how to do it. How, how do you actually realize the change that, that we all want to see in the industry? How do you go about on the ground increasing diversity and increasing inclusion in your law firm. Can you talk about some of the strategies that, that you recommend and advocate for? And if, if we're successful in doing this, where you hope this carries the industry over the next five to 10 years? Well, absolutely. Where I hope it carries the industry is increased representation at all levels of the profession, you know, regardless of ethnicity, gender, religion, or socioeconomical background. Um, the closing of the gender and the ethnicity pay gap you know, to allow equal pay for equal work. 
um, change ways of working to allow for progression for all members of the profession, um, taking into account different constraints and responsibilities to allow the best candidates to thrive are some of the ways to achieve the aim of a truly uh, diverse and inclusive profession. But it's about talking. It's about speaking up, sharing best practices. So one of the things that we are doing uh, currently and will be doing is roundtables, where we're asking our members of different sizes, different uh, uh, sectors or practices to get together and discuss their shared experience and what they do, how they do it, and take the best from that uh, uh, and move forward. And we're gonna do so in collaboration with other parts of the legal profession to, as I say, really show that we are truly serious about effecting change, because there's no point talking about it if you're gonna do nothing about it. Well, thanks so much for joining us this morning, Stephanie. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, so many valuable insights and excited to see the impact you have as president. And uh, congratulations again on, on making history. It's, it's a momentous achievement and one that uh, you are rightfully proud of. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Jack. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast. 